In the last 10 years, our field has gone from an unknown specialty to a household name. This brings unprecedented opportunities, but we need to rise up to meet them and give our patients the care that they deserve. In order to help others get better, we need to be better. This podcast will help you to become more confident with your patients, more successful in your practice or business, and a leader in pelvic health. And we're gonna have some fun along the way. Join us as we rise together. We're Jesse and Nicole Cozine, founders of Pelvic Sanity Physical Therapy and the creators of the Pelvic PT Huddle. And this is Pelvic PT Rising. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Pelvic PT Rising podcast with Jesse and Nicole Cozine. Hey, Nicole. Hello. All right, this is part two of our eight myths of IC, and we want to go through and we hit myths one through four in part one. If you haven't got that, pause this, go back, make sure to check all of that out. But we're going to run through myths five through eight right now. First, I want to answer a question, though, that we got is what is our preparation and setup like this for? Because we had a bunch of statistics, a bunch of information, a bunch of all this stuff in part one, and people were asking like, where does that all come from? And I don't know, Nicole, you wanna give them the answer? It comes from like years of research and preparation. And yeah, and that we just like busted that out. I mean, we had like, hey, wanna do an IC myth thing? For our next podcast, we need to do something more clinical instead of the business stuff that we've been doing. And I was like, sure, let's bust it out. And then I got off on like crazy tangents because we're freaking passionate about it. A. B, we've freaking done so much work on this, you guys. I cannot express to you enough. And like, I hope you guys saw in the last, in the in part one, that like Jesse knows his shit, man. Like dove in with me with interstitial cystitis research for the book like no joke guarantee hands down knows more than most OBGYNs, urologists and frankly some pelvic pts about ic for the ob guys and euro that's damning with faint praise i'm afraid <laughs> I know. in terms of our actual setup the way that we do this is we're like the kid who is in high school and writing their their essay. We literally just have a blank piece of paper that says eight myths of IC on it, where usually we would put notes or something. It's it's literally a blank page. We've got two glasses of Chianti tonight and a microphone, and that is it. So that's our setup. That's our secret. It's definitely the Chianti. So <laughs> Chianti. Everyone just get wasted before you treat patients and you'll be better. That's just teasing. I'm not saying that. No, definitely not. <laughs> that is not legal advice. And our lawyer is screaming us head off right now. <laughs> but I want to go ahead and start diving into the next set of IC myths. Myth number five. And just to give you guys a real quick recap, the first four, in case you guys missed it, myth one is IC is solely a bladder condition. Myth two is IC is rare. Myth three is that IC is a woman's condition or doesn't affect men. And myth four is a big one. There is a standard IC diet that everyone should be following. And this one kind of follows up on myth four about the IC diet. And myth number five is that acidic foods should always be avoided. Nicole, isn't that true? Oh, that is so not true. And so here's this is where it gets like a little bit interesting because it is true 
that there is a group of foods on the most likely to irritate anyone's bladder where they happen to be acidic. So sometimes even I still am okay with saying that like a little bit because it's it makes it easy. It is something that can be sort of grouped together for patients to understand. It's a convenient shorthand basically for folks. Totally. But at the end of the day though, we need to understand the power of our language to patients. And this is where we understand as pelvic PTs, and now that you're listening to the podcast, you will certainly understand as pelvic PTs that it's not that simple. But to some patients, it is interpreted as that simple. And so we really need to be educating patients that it's not about the acidity of the food. Like our biochemistry, if you recall, like I was a physiology and neuroscience major, I had to take biochem at all kinds of different classes on that. And like, what we intake in its form as pH form outside of our bodies has literally almost nothing to do with what its form is inside of our bodies. And even further has less to do with what it actually presents itself in the urine. And we'll go over like one crazy study that we will bust this myth all once and for good. And that one is one of my favorites because it's the kind of thing that I would do as a researcher who does not care about human beings at all. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll get into that. That's literally my favorite study on IC that's ever been done. But like Nicole was saying, the, the pH of the body stays at a extremely narrow range. And if you get outside of that range, you literally die. And so the implication of this myth is that, oh, you're putting acid into your body. It's flowing through your body. Your body is quote unquote acidic. That's making your urine acidic. And that is irritating the lining of your bladder because your urine is more acidic now. And like refer to part one where it's like myth number one, I see a solely a bladder condition. It's not, it's not about the lining. 90 to 95% of people don't have a problem with the lining of the bladder. So why do people have a problem with this quote unquote acidic food? And that's a great just overall thing that we want to debunk a lot of stuff with. So first of all, acid in does not equal acid out, right? So a great example of this is lemons. One of the most acidic things that you can eat, right? You bite into it and your face makes that, I don't know if you guys have seen those like videos of like kids having a lemon for the yeah, first time. Yeah, it looks time. like a pucker. It looks like a pelvic floor contraction, right? Like a pucker of the lips. Oh, my mind did not go there. <laughs> but we've all seen those videos and they're hilarious, right? Because that's literally one of the most acidic things that we can eat. But actually the way the body metabolizes that is it actually turns basic within the body and is less than a lot of other foods that are either neutral or basic when they go in. So acid in does not equal acid out. The biggest proof of that is that if that was true, all we would do, the most powerful thing you can do about acid is to take an antacid, right? So if that was really true and acid was the problem, then all you would need to do is chug Tums or Pepto-Bismol or whatever you took And you could eat anything you want. And that's clearly not the case for people with IC. It's just not. And the more that we perpetuate this myth without any qualifications, the worse it is for patients. Because then they have a fear of food. Then they think that the IC diet is true. Then they don't actually look for their specific food triggers. Then they 
take multiple food groups just out of the equation because they're quote unquote acidic outside of the body, then they get malnourished, then they continue to have the fear of food. And it's just this terrible spiral downhill of based in myth. That's a perfect way to phrase that too on the first aspect of this myth is that acid in does not equal acid out. The second thing to realize is that the pH of the urine in the bladder fluctuates hugely throughout the day. It's always acidic in everybody. And there's no, there've been studies, there is no correlation between the actual pH of the urine that people are naturally excreting and their normal pain during the day. Because if there were, if this was true, we would expect to see fluctuations where when the urine is more acidic, you would get more pain. When it's closer to neutral, you'd be feeling better. There is not that sort of pattern, and that happens multiple times per day in each patient. There is not that sort of pattern that's seen. But this brings us to my favorite study. Jesse is getting so excited, like he's wiggling in his seat. Oh, you guys have no idea. Oh, geez. Here we go. Jesse, what is the study that showed that this is actually a myth? Okay, so these (laughs) bomb-ass scientists, I love this basically had, they decided this is like the most scientific thing ever where they just don't care about the patient at all. They just decide they're going to resolve this once and for all. So they took people who had icy symptoms and they had them urinate. And for some of those people, they actually put a neutralizer into the urine. So they made it perfectly neutral. And for the rest of the people, they just kept their normal acidic urine and they actually catheterized them and put that urine back into those people so they could tell whether your acidic urine, let's say it was at 4.5 pH and then the neutral urine at seven in those people, did that make a difference in their symptoms? And Nicole, the answer is no, zero, zero correlation could not tell which, which urine was instilled back into their own bladders, which is crazy. So now that is the, final nail in the coffin of this myth, right? So the first nail is acid in doesn't equal acid out. The way your body metabolizes and processes does not mean that there is going to be acid that, you know, you eat a lemon and it actually turns your urine more acidic. In that case, eating a lemon actually makes your urine more basic. So that's the first part of that myth. The second part is urine pH does not matter at all which we should not be surprised by because of myth number one, it is not about the bladder lining. And I think here, you guys, the thing that we need to be careful of is, is the patient that comes in that is just wed to this thing. And then you go and you look and you try to look up some stuff and you don't really have enough time. And you're like, oh yeah, acidic food should be avoided. And you're not actually diving into the research. And then it just be, we start to perpetuate that own fear of an entire food group that is eliminated and is fearful to eat simply because of a false narrative that acidic food should always be avoided with IC. And it feeds back into that first myth of the only reason that that could possibly be true is that this is a bladder lining issue, right? So you're now reinforcing not only myth number five, but also probably the most damaging myth, 
is myth number one, that it's a bladder lining issue when that's not the case. Totally. And so it's just one of those things that we want you to be aware of. We want you to be mindful of your language. We want you to be mindful of how you're talking to patients about this because it freaking matters, you guys. And I've seen so many patients that it takes me literally, I'm not joking, months to get this out of their mind and to actually trust the fact that they don't have to drink alkaline water every two seconds, right? And they don't have to be fearful if there's one tomato on like one little thing, if they know. And the craziest thing is, is that patients know they come in and they're like, I'm staying away from everything acidic. I eat something acidic. My symptoms didn't change. I still need to, to stay away from something acidic because the fear is so there and that can perpetuate their nervous system upregulation and all the other things. So seriously, just cut it out of your vocabulary right now. We're going to talk at the very end of this episode about kind of how you deal with patients who are tied to what they've been told, what they've researched, and how to kind of gently work through that because we've talked a lot in, in this podcast and we've had some other episodes on it. We'll put them in the show notes about how it's not about you. You don't have to be right. You don't have to throw all of this at the patient on day one, but it's important that at least those of us who are in this field know what is true and that this is maybe a shorthand for some things that are common triggers, but it's not a universal truth. Totally. So we hit that myth. Myth number six, this is gonna get Nicole fired up. Elmeron is the (laughs) only medication option for IC. Okay. You guys. Now, here, I actually don't know which way I want to go with this, to be perfectly honest with you. So, just you're going to have to reel me in if I go one direction. Why don't we hit what's the origin of this myth? Okay, the origin of the myth is linked to IC myth number one, right? Is that there's a lining problem with the bladder. Elmeron is structurally and molecularly similar to heparin, which is similar and molecularly, structurally, similar to the gag layer of the bladder glycoaminoglycan layer and that is going to coat the bladder coats the bladder and this is again based on myths that we've already debunked right but would coat the bladder and prevent all of these nasty toxins and acidity from leaching through potassium and all these other nonsense things and causing pain and so this myth is actually interesting because elmoron is the only oral medication at least uh, there's a actually old application for dmso from way back in the 1970s for intra bladder use but elmron is the only drug that has been fda approved specifically for ic so it makes it an easy thing for a physician or urologist to recommend because that's the one thing out there that's actually been approved for ic and it makes a non-IC type doctor, very easy, because what do they do when they think like, oh, I'm going to diagnose this person with interstitial cystitis. Hang on, patient. Let me go back. They freaking Google or use their whatever database they have about what are the drugs that are options for me to prescribe. And boom, what comes up? FDA approved Elmeron. Cool. I can do that. Here you go. It says to take it for six to eight months. Come back to me at this time. Here's the IC diet list. I am the best urologist on the face of this planet. Right. Eh. 
And Wrong. I actually have a little bit of, I don't know, I'm a little bit impressed with the way that they marketed this. It's brilliant from a business marketing standpoint, but think about any other drug that you're given that your doctor says, this is going to help you sometime between six and 24 months from now. <laughs> and any improvement that you see over the next two years in the natural ebb and flow of your condition is due to this drug that I give you. But any flares or anything else that's going on that's negative is absolutely can't possibly not the fault be, of the drug. Yeah, can't possibly be that. So if you see any improvement in what you're doing over the next two years, it is because of my drug. That is insane. What other drug do we take that we would accept that like if you if your diabetes medication, if, if your doctor prescribed you insulin and said, like, hey, this might affect your blood sugar sometime over the next two years, give it a shot. <laughs> Like, what the hell like, is that guy what? talking about, right? Yeah, so that's like, that's like part of this whole myth of Elmeron is that they were just able to throw out these like random time frames where any benefit that you see in your symptoms, no matter what, is due to this drug. It somehow just like magically started kicking in right when your stress levels went down or right when you started going to pelvic PT or right when you started doing yoga and exercising more. It's like, that's not how drugs work. Totally. So here's the other thing from a pelvic PT's perspective, and I get a lot of questions of this when I teach my live IC course and where people are like, well, that's out of our scope of practice to talk about medications with patients and discourage them from what their doctor recommended. And frankly, you guys, I just really think that that's so much bullshit. I can't even handle it sometimes. If you actually do the research and you listen to things like this and you make sure that we're saying the right thing and you look at the articles that we're referencing in the IC solution and all of the things, then there is absolutely no reason why we cannot use our doctorate level freaking education and our knowledge of interstitial cystitis as a condition that we treat and we are experts at treating and put those two things together and counsel our patients on the facts about the drug and recommend that they go and talk to their prescribing physician with facts on, I think that I might not want to start Elmeron right away. What are the options for me instead of Elmeron? Number one. Number two, the patient goes in and says, hey, I was looking at the side effects of Elmeron and they're relatively extensive. I have IBS. The top side effect of Elmeron is GI disturbance. I'm concerned about that. May I please try another option? Step three, I don't want to be on any freaking drug. Especially what? <laughs> not one for the rest of my life. And one, and that one that's not $800 to $1,000 per month because I don't want to do that. So is there anything else that you can prescribe me in the meantime? There is absolutely no problem for us to give patients the tools to go talk to their physician about it, especially if you're deeming that this physician is being an idiot and not going by the AUA guidelines. So let me, there's, oh, there's so much to unpack here. We're going to put in the show notes a link to a blog post that we wrote with actually all of the evidence that you guys have it, but 
just kind of off the top of our heads. Fact, the two studies that got Elmeron approved show that it helped 28% of patients in one study and 32% of patients in another study, while the placebo was helping between 16 and 18%. So what that means for us is even in the best studies for Elmeron, the ones that came out the best for them, it helped at most one third of people. Every patient that we find, and fortunately, I think this is changing a little bit now, and we hope to make this change a lot more in the future. Yeah, only because it's causing like massive eye problems now. Right, and, well, and people <laughs> are hearing are like, more about pelvic PT, we're, we're doing all of the education that we can, but most patients are just thrown on that for a year plus and told that that is gonna help them. And at best, two thirds of them aren't gonna see any difference. Now, the biggest and the best studies with Elmeron that were done with the most number of patients found that it actually had no difference over a placebo. I want to repeat that again. It was no better than placebo, had significantly more side effects, had all of the issues, all of the cost associated with taking the drug, all of the opportunity cost of waiting around for months or years for this drug to supposedly work for patients, and it was no better than taking a sugar pill. They actually stopped and discontinued the study because it wasn't helping anybody. That's huge, right? And that's information that we can translate on. The other one that's really important because the founders of Elmron, the, the whole point of what they say is like, oh, you're just not taking enough. If it's not working for you, you need to take more. They actually did dose-dependent studies, and they found that there was no difference between taking 100 milligrams, 300 milligrams, which is the normal dose, and 900 milligrams. Right, So there was no difference between those things, and yet people are just being told, you haven't been on it long enough, you need to take more, which obviously means more side effects, more cost, more long-term issues. There is so much to go into and unpack here. And by the way, also, I'm just going to give, might as well, I'm just going to give you guys a little insight into the guy who created Elmeron, which is in, in the blog post that we're going to talk about. But this doctor, his name is Dr. Parsons, and he is in San Diego, which for any of you guys who know that I'm in Orange County, is literally like less than 30, minutes, probably 30, 45 minutes away. I have spoken to him on multiple occasions. I sat with his wife on the board of the Interstitial Cystitis Association, and he is so wed to this drug that he, I guarantee he will literally go to his grave thinking it's the best thing ever. And he's super dismissive of anything I had to say, would not listen to me about anything that I had written, anything that I was talking about pelvic PT has specific. I've had multiple of his patients coming to me saying, Dr. Parsons said that pelvic PT was going to be a waste of time, even with you. Yeah, that's what? Yep. We're not fans. And and to be honest, I mean I would be if I was making millions of dollars a year from people prescribing a drug that I had co-patented, I might be pushing it too. But But F that. That's the America is going against the American Neurological Association. Like honestly, what the F? And I don't know. My my one experience with Dr. Parsons was we were actually at a IC walk where we were raising awareness, where, where patients, it was really a cool event. Patients were coming in from all over the country who had been struggling with this for years. 
And literally, Dr. Parsons got up on the stage and said, I've cured IC. All you need to do is take Elmeron. Literally, you're taking you it, guys, literally, like, literally in front of people who've been joking. suffering with this we for probably have years. A video of it. I almost had an aneurysm. Could, Nicole, like, literally had to push me away, away. stage. It was and so I walked away, too. We both had to take a walk. Where it, was, it was bad. Yeah. So, basically, the condition that you guys have all been suffering with, I cured 25 years ago. And if only you took more and higher concentrations of my drug, you would be absolutely fine. That was so weird. That icy walk was like crickets when he was up there i was like oh my god anyway so that's like a little bit of insight into all the backstory but this thing but like honestly and i don't want to get into i mean i'm pretty vocal about now i've been doing this a long enough time where it's just like you know what if you suck at your job i gotta call your shit out but but honestly like i don't necessarily like people that are good-hearted people that are good people that are just prescribing the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing that are trying to help their patients well like we would never talk like this about them but this is a really a this is a big deal when you know better that's like it's you know, really god tough. it's just really super freaking annoying so to get back to all of that though elmron is absolutely not the only oral medication that you can be taking the AUA has a whole set of guidelines. There's a lot of stuff that has been done for pain, for nervous system downregulation, for antihistamine. All of that stuff is options and might be a much better fit for patients. So that's one of the things we'll actually put up some links in the uh, show notes here where you guys can take a look at actually what the AUA guidelines are. You can download a little summary that we've put together that you're more than welcome to share with patients. But you can ask, like, hey, I see that there's multiple options here. Which one of these would be best for me based on my specific symptom presentation? And it is not often just take Elmeron, and that is going to make the difference. And I want to just bring this point home, and then we're going to move on to number seven. Otherwise, it's going to be a part three <laughs> part of this three. podcast, no, and we be. can't do Seriously, that. no. But I will say this, you guys, that... It is 100% in our scope of practice to present evidence-based information like we're going to present to you in the show notes about how your patient could go back to their physician and ask intelligent questions and get them to be advocates in their own health. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. And it is in our scope of practice to do that we take pharmacology courses, by the way, in case you forgot, back in the day. And it's our duty, honestly, as public health care practitioners to educate ourselves on these areas and coach our patients how to talk to their healthcare providers on how to get the best intervention that is right for them. Perfect. And I hope that puts a pin in that conversation. Moving on, myth number seven, IC pain is all in your head. I cannot tell you how many times we've seen this. In fact, one of, I even took a screenshot of it. I need to post that at some point. That was striking. That right? was striking. To that was something from, that you actually were like, oh shit, like this we, is a thing. We hear it from patients so often that they're dismissed. They're told that there's no physical reason for their pain, that they needed to go get, you know, talk to a psychologist. And that all, you hear that at the front desk. You, I mean, I know that you guys as public PTs hear that all the time. It was something else to actually see. We had a patient who came in who brought her notes from her doctor's appointment. And after she talked about all of her excruciating symptoms, how they had started, everything else, 
there was one line at the end of like what she should do that the doctor had written in her notes. And it was go see a psychologist. Yeah, I think the exact words were ambulatory referral to a psychologist or psychiatrist. And it was like. Even just seeing that written in black and white, <laughs> I, I get a little bit emotional, like thinking about that right now. That's great. I cannot imagine going in for something like that and having a doctor not just say that or have that in the back of their mind and have that be the feeling that you get from them. But literally, you're writing that out as the one thing that they need to do to take care of their symptoms. That, God, that's crazy to me. It's just nuts. And so it happens. If we're not seeing it, it's certainly an underpinning of the patient's experience at their physician's office. And we need to, number one, as public health care practitioners, as public PTs, we need to understand that that might be someone's experience, that we need to be extremely careful with how we approach the subject of pain science and how that might be perceived when somebody has just been told that they're kind of nutso, they need a psychologist referral, and now all of a sudden we get on our high horse about how, well, let me talk to you about the brain and pain and interstitial cystitis and if we're not careful with our language here, the patient will hear, even though we have the best intentions of doing pain science education, if we start to dive into this too soon or too hardcore, the patient will hear, that is the same thing that my doctor said, you're saying the pain is in my head. Uh, that drives me crazy because it makes it difficult. And one of actually the most difficult things about writing about IC just from like our perspective or my perspective in doing that is talking about some of the ways that pain science matters and stress management matters and all of that stuff without sounding like you're dismissing the physical causes or making it seem like you're reinforcing that idea that it's all in your head. And that, I think that's some of the areas where we've had to be most careful with what we actually say in our language and stuff. Totally. And then from our perspective, you guys, as pelvic PTs, we do need to educate patients that pain is made in the brain. There is a nervous system component to people's interstitial cystitis symptoms, period. But that does not mean that it's all, quote, in their head. By definition, anybody that's saying that, as the guys David Butler and Laura Mosley say, like anybody that says that pain isn't made in the brain or that the pain is in your head doesn't understand like basic pain neuroscience. So it's a line that we need to sort of, you know, walk gingerly, but we need to understand that we need to educate from a pain science perspective, but we also need to understand where the patient is and our language needs to match and meet them where they are and sort of guide them and take them along the way when they're ready to hear what we have to say. And so I do not go into this dissertation about pain science usually in the first two seconds that I'm meeting them, right? It takes, they need to trust us. They need to trust that we know what's going on. We need to, need to trust their process. We need to educate them on other physical aspects of the condition. And then we can start to broach the concept of that this actually is a bigger deal, that mental health care is really as important, that nervous system downregulation is important. Um, we'll go into that in a different podcast, what that really means, because I think we overutilize that term as well. But bottom line is that there's multiple aspects to get this 
concept into your patient and it's not always appropriate in visit one, two, three, ten even. Right. And so when you actually talk about this is is dependent on each individual person. And that's after you demonstrated that you are very concerned about the actual physical underpinnings of it because you've been treating that for weeks, months, whatever that is, before you're really hitting these other aspects of things. hundred percent. And it just totally depends on each individual patient. But that is something that you need to take into consideration for sure is like how good is your relationship and how, frankly, how good have you been as a pelvic physical therapist to address some of the physical aspects and get them a win so that they trust you so that you can say things to them like this and they're not going to freak out and they're not going to internalize that as like, oh, she's just like everybody else. And we're going to close out with number eight. I see is a quote unquote incurable disease. And this is something that I don't think that many of us actually believe. I think that this is something that we need to understand that as a pelvic physical therapist, many of our patients are actually under the impression that they're going to pelvic PT because that's the end of the rope for them and they need to wait for a cure. And if any of the if you've ever looked at any of the interstitial cystitis support groups online, there are so many people that are being like, why isn't this condition researched? And like, we need a cure. And this is why I get super pissed off at the interstitial cystitis association, which may I remind you, I am a board member of, and I still can't change this shit yet where we have, I see advocacy walks and interstitial cystitis walk for a cure language. Oh, when it's Nicole like, got that thing God. that they were going to call it the walk for a cure, she almost just poured some lighter fluid on the whole program. I almost, I literally actually almost quit the ICA at that point. I was like, if I've been on this board for how long and we still are calling this shit IC for walk for a cure, I seriously would rather bang my head into some glass. Honestly, but I, I figured I just needed to stay on the board, just continue to institute change. And maybe one day we're going to call it Icy Walk for Awareness. Not doesn't have much of a, of a ring, but, you know, it's accurate. And one of, so when we actually talk about this with patients, right, like a cure by definition, I like this just kind of brief definition. A cure is a substance or procedure that ends a medical condition. And we talk about this with a lot of chronic pain situations, but in reality, like how many conditions actually have a cure? So, I mean, we talk about like diabetes, no cure, heart disease, no cure, arthritis, no cure, common cold, no cure, none of that allergies, fibromyalgia, chronic migraines, osteoporosis, IBS, none of those have a cure, a simple pill that you can take that is going to just end your condition. And that's okay. Like all of those things can be managed. All of those things don't have to influence your life. People, all those things can be symptom free. Absolutely. Right. So it's so frustrating and honestly damaging to people's psyche. Yeah. Their, their icy journey to just sit there and say, Oh, we're going to wait around for a cure. Well, guess what? If there was an easy cure, we would have found it. We've been dealing with this condition for 200 years. People have tried everything. They've tried supplements. They've tried medications. They've tried bladder insulations. They've tried all of this stuff. If there was one easy answer that worked for everybody, we would have found it by now. 
Totally. And so this is where in the pelvic PT world, we need to understand where this is more about a myth of understanding where patients are coming from, understanding what their hangups are about interstitial cystitis. Know that if they have been on any sort of interstitial cystitis forum, they are talking about a cure. Why isn't there a urine marker? All of these things that we need to be making sure that we're busting these myths for them when it's appropriate and when they're ready to hear it. But there is no cure and that's freaking okay because the condition, the more that we understand it, is a multifactorial, multifaceted condition of which, and let's circle back to IC myth number one, which is a pelvic floor, a bladder, a little bit, and the nervous system condition. And we are so well equipped to treat and to guide the patients through that entire journey that we need to make sure that we are clear on what we are capable of and what we aren't capable of and what the patients are actually coming to us for. And that is to resolve their symptoms. And there are multiple ways and multiple avenues that we can help them to do that. And I know we promised talking to you guys a little bit at the end about Nicole's ideas for how to actually incorporate these into day-to-day stuff, right? Because it's one thing for people in this field who are dealing with this all the time to know these myths, but how, Nicole, do you deal with somebody who walks in with, and I, this is a great example from an actual patient, who walks in with the picture, literally, of their bladder that was taken in 1985 with red spots on it and is so that concept of I see is almost like an identity thing for them. And they have, maybe they hold five or six of these myths and it's actually holding them back from improving. It's keeping them doing the same thing over and over again, but you can't necessarily just spout this all off at day one. Like, Hey, look what Nicole says about all these I see myths. Gosh. And this is, this might be have to be part three. Do you think it's going to be part three? I have honestly, it ha- kind of has to be. But here's one. Okay, All right. let's leave you with this. Let's leave you with this. This is going to be part three. We literally just decided that right now. He's looking at me, being like, "Really?" <laughs> well, there's no more Chianti, so we definitely have to switch topics. Okay, but seriously, you guys, we need. I'll leave you with this. I want you to to start to assess your patience for. How wed to the idea are they about their diagnosis? So the person that is clutching their cystoscopy picture from 1985 and is saying, I've had IC for whatever the math is, 30 something years, 20 something years. I am coming to you. I've been suffering for this many years. I don't know. I'm at the end of my rope. Is that really the person that you're going to sit down and be like, actually, bit number one, this is not a bladder condition at all. And actually, the red things in the bladder right there, they've actually been shown to not be associated with IC. Okay. That is not the conversation that you're going to have on day one, on day two, on day 10, even of your guys's relationship. The opposite of that, I'll give you the exact opposite of that, is someone that comes in and says, my urologist 
said that I have this thing called IC. And I don't really think I have it. I've done a ton of research. And like, I think I might have pelvic floor dysfunction instead. And blah, 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 blah. And they start just going off about how they don't really like their urologist anyways. And they've been reading a ton of the things. And they think everybody on the forums is crazy. That person doesn't want to identify with that condition. So that's the person that you're going to say, yeah, actually, you're totally right. Right. So it's all about timing and it's all about identifying which patient you're actually dealing with. And at what point in the realization of their condition are they at? And there's a whole bunch of continuum in between that. That is a continuum. There's the person that's clutching their MRI, their cystoscopy, whatever. And then there's the person that's like kind of been diagnosed with it that doesn't want to believe anything any doctor said right and then there's a whole bunch of people in between and it's the in-between people that we're going to talk about in part three part three so you guys just heard it here first we are doing part three of this discussion <laughs> but i want to go ahead and summarize what we just talked about for all of this stuff and then we're going to talk about actually how to apply that in clinical practice in part three here so i'm going to blow through the myths right here nicole if you have anything else you want to add knock it out on each one i'll but try to be quiet <laughs> myth number one i see is solely a bladder condition myth number two i see is rare myth number three i see does not affect men it's a women's condition myth four there's a standard i see diet that all patients should be following myth five acidic foods should always be avoided myth six elmeron is the only medication option that can work for you myth seven I see is all in your head and myth eight I see is an incurable disease and you are destined to continue to get worse and to devolve as your symptoms continue to progress. Okay, I'm going to do something really quick. I'm going to do it. that same thing and I'm going to do what we should actually think. Ooh, truth. Okay. Okay. The I see truth. I see is a pelvic floor, a nervous system, and a bladder brain connection dysfunction problem. Myth number two, I see is not rare. It's actually quite common. It's the horse, not the zebra. I see myth number three, interstitial cystitis certainly affects men and it is likely that chronic prostatitis and I see is the same freaking thing. I see truth number four, there is no such thing as a standard I see diet. The gold standard is doing an elimination diet to find a person's specific trigger foods. I see truth number five is that acidic foods don't mean shit. You need to actually figure out your trigger foods. See myth number four. I see truth number six, Elmeron sucks. And if your patient is on it, they should be counseled to how to talk to their practitioner about changing that situation. I see truth number seven mental health and the nervous system component is significantly important in people with any sort of chronic pain condition especially interstitial cystitis and that we have to address that fact with people when they're ready i see truth number eight i see may not be quote unquote incurable by the definition but that we can provide a specific and an intervention that is helpful and that patients can become asymptomatic that I see pain can be eliminated and it is possible and probable that the patient can live a happy, healthy, pain-free life with interstitial cystitis. Okay. So just to summarize though, we talked about these myths in part one and now part two for 
almost an hour and a half. And you didn't tell me that you could just take care of like all of the issue in what did you do that in like a minute and <laughs> 30 seconds? seconds? People have to understand the background of stuff though. That's what we really feel. Guys, if you need to go back and blow through that again, <laughs> that was awesome. I kind of retract part one and part two of the podcast. You guys can just listen to that last minute and 30 seconds of Nicole dropping icy truths instead of us debunking icy myths. Obviously, this is something really, we're really passionate about. This is something that affects a ton of patients that we're really frustrated that are still having to deal with this on a day-to-day basis. If you guys have questions about this, please feel free to write us. We're actually going to be putting out a course on this for you guys whenever we can actually finally get that recorded. We've been thinking about it for a long time. We're going to drop part three of this and how you can actually practically implement these things with patients who are tied or wed or identify with their diagnosis and actually make that work after you've built trust. But there is so much to unpack here. I hope you guys have enjoyed this. If you have questions, let us know. We want to keep this conversation going. And let's continue to rise.